Chapter Eight of Sex Life of the Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pamela Krantz. Sex Life of the Gods by Michael Knurr. Chapter Eight. Sometime near midnight, Beth took the car and went home. Nick poured a cup of coffee she had made for him and went back into the study to look at the paintings a second time. It was good professional work, and he wondered if he could do the same stuff again. Hell, he decided, it'll be a long time until I get back at an easel. He finished the coffee and went up to bed. It took a while to get to sleep. Thoughts of the wrecked plane, Beth, the strange men, and Nolan Bryce kept running around in his head without finding answers to the enigmas they presented to him. Finally he slept. He was looking at himself in the dream, but it was not in a mirror. He was standing inside a polished room, and the other Nick Danson lay on a bed wrapped in sleep. Nick blinked at the still duplicate of himself on the bed, and turned away to look at the room he was in. It wasn't large, it appeared to be some kind of bedroom, and it was well lighted, although there were no lights to be seen. The walls seemed to glow, and everything was of a bright metal. The mirror caught his eye, and he saw himself in the same blue and yellow uniform that he'd worn before. The Danson who lay asleep on the bed was dressed in blue dress pants and a white shirt. The tie had been loosened at his throat, and his clothing was wrinkled badly. Suddenly the other Danson opened his eyes and looked at Nick. For a moment he appeared to be startled at seeing him, then he smiled. The smile erupted in a chuckle that became a laugh. The other Danson's face grew large and full, roaring out laughter at Nick, until the whole scene changed from one of odd curiosity to one of absolute horror, the kind of weird horror that can come only from peals of loud, echoing laughter rolling through the caverns of the mind. Nick awoke, gasping, his fingers knotted in the sheets of the bed and a cold sweat beating out upon his face. His heart hammered in his chest like a drum, threatening to leap to his throat at any moment. He looked around anxiously for Beth, but the silence of the room reminded him that she had gone back to the city in her job. Dawn was breaking, and the dim light filtered through the unwashed windows. There was little point in trying to sleep now. Might as well get his clothes on and try to start unraveling a long thread of odd events. He pulled on his clothes slowly, and slid his feet into his shoes, wondering where to begin the climb back to himself. It would be bad enough for an amnesia victim to regain all his memory if given an unlimited length of time. This way, with people closing in on all sides, the whole damned thing seemed impossible. He hooked the last button on his shirt, stuffed it into his pants, and headed for the kitchen. He warmed up last night's coffee, and it tasted like warm sulfuric acid, but it brought him around to full consciousness, even if his stomach did object to it. When he had finished the coffee, he found the library in the den, and began reading a few of the titles. Often, he remembered, a lot could be told from a man by his reading habits. There were books by Bridgman, Zadenberg, and Loomis. Almost everything on the shelves pertained to art in some form or another, except for the last row. There were about fifteen science fiction volumes, mostly collections of short stories, from Asimov to A. E. Van Vogt. 
he had a fleeting idea to start reading the stuff in an effort to determine whether or not his strange dreams came from somewhere within the pages, then he rejected it. It would take a hell of a long while to even skim through that mass of literature, and he didn't have the time. He shoved a copy of H. Beam Piper back onto the shelf and straightened. To hell with it. He had the whole house to search before he started fumbling through something as far out as science fiction. He started rummaging through the various rooms of the place with systematic carefulness, hoping. When he finished the search, it was noon. He knew a lot about the cabin, but damned little about himself. The cramped, dismal attic contained what was left of pictures, odd bits of furniture, and clothes, after the local field mice and porcupines had their annual convention up there. The three bedrooms revealed nothing except the usual gear to be found in any bedroom, and of the downstairs section of the place only the art studio and the combination den library was of interest and even these places shed no light upon the ghost of the man that haunted him the studio contained all the trappings of an artist even though it was in rather battered-up shape and the den was a wall-to-wall -wall replica of what a woodsman might have owned there were the books the stuffed heads and of course the guns the rack on the far side of the room contained a table with bullet-loading equipment scattered around it, with cans of DuPont powder on the floor. Above it, in the gun-rack, were the weapons, enough to hold off a small revolution. There were two hand-guns and three rifles and a shotgun. He looked them over. A Smith & Wesson thirty-eight, Model 36, and a Ruger Blackhawk forty-four Magnum that looked like the old Peacemaker model. One of the rifles was a Marlin saddle carbine, model 336, and the other was a Winchester African rifle with a 458 bore. The last gun on the rack was a Stevens 410 single-barrel shotgun. Nick grinned at the arsenal and took the 44 Magnum down from the rack to clean it. It wasn't in too bad of shape, even for as long as it had remained idle. Even the Western-style holster and gun belt contained enough oil to make them pliable. He slipped the magnum into the holster and buckled the gun belt about his waist, letting it hang a little on the right side. To hell with it, he thought. If those two characters show up now, at least I'll have an edge. He pulled five forty-four special slugs from the belt and loaded the weapon, being careful to see that the hammer hung on the empty chamber. Then he decided to see how good he was. Where the hill rose sharply for a small distance behind the house, Nick found a good area where he could test his marksmanship. He lined up five cans a few feet apart, at the base of the rise, and snapped off five fast shots at them as quick as the single action would operate. Either amnesia had nothing to do with a man's gun knowledge, or he was a natural. All five cans were blown to hell and sent skittering against the side of the hill. Stunned but satisfied, he reloaded the revolver and dropped it back into the holster. He prowled the grounds about the cabin with the aimlessness of a man looking for something but not sure what. Beyond the lawn furniture and the shed that contained his tools, the only other interesting thing was the creek. A fast-running little stream, barely a foot deep, but filled with numerous little holes that bragged of trout. He walked along the gurgling water for a ways, and then he went back to the house, still unsure of what to do. He went back to the cabin and shoved the door open and stopped dead. She was just like the painting. Her raven-black hair hung loose and free, 
while beneath the scant confines of the shorts and halter the warm flesh rose and fell temptingly nick stood there unable to say a word it was janet and the light in her eyes made him wonder what kind of a guy he'd been more than ever she gave a little gasp of pure pleasure and flung herself into his arms planting the ripe sweetness of her lips squarely on his janet he managed but she had a strange hold on him end of chapter 8 recording by pamela crantz